Listen now to the word of God. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we have been killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So reads the word of God. Are you blessed by that this morning? Amen. Amen. This is another one of those texts that you you barely want to touch as a preacher. Not because it's fearful to do so, but because the text is so clear and so direct. It's like, wow, you know, any talking I do about this is going to obscure it, not help it. But with God's help, perhaps that will not be so. Perhaps we can drill into this a bit and drink deeply of the well of this passage to the nourishment of our souls and to our refreshment. A relative who holds a different theological conviction than I do on this topic once asked me, what leads you to believe that the Bible teaches the eternal security of those who trust in Christ as Savior? It was asked from a position of doubt, a position of not believing that the scriptures teach that. When I was asked that question, I answered by referencing this morning's text. This goes back many, many years, probably 35, perhaps as close to 40 years ago that I was asked this question. And it still resonates in my mind, and I'm still drawn to this text in answer to that question. If I were asked it again today, what leads me to believe that the Bible teaches the eternal security of those who trust in Christ as Savior, I would still go to Romans 8, 31 to 39. When I answered that question back then, after mentioning that text, I said, actually, you know, Romans 8, 18 to 39 is, is really good for that as well. And, and really, Romans 5, 1 through 8 uh, is good. Or actually, Romans three twenty one through 8. And then, really, the whole of the letter of Rome, letter to Rome, makes that argument. Along with key texts from Paul's other letters, 
Then there's also the teachings of Jesus, especially several of those recorded in the Gospel of John, and then also in John's first letter, and then also in his letter of Revelation. There are some amazing statements about the security of the believer in that final book of the Bible. Then there's also the assurances of the Old Testament prophets to Israel. And many assertions to that effect in the Psalms, as we are all accustomed to reading. Perhaps you get the picture. I believe that the whole of God's Word teaches that salvation is in His hands. That, that He grants it to those whom He chooses, as we'll see clearly in the next chapter. And that he will never retract it from those to whom he has given it. The eternal security of those who trust in Christ as Savior. But I don't believe there's a passage in Scripture that expresses that latter thought especially. That God will never retract salvation from those to whom he has given it. I don't believe there's any passage in Scripture that expresses that thought our security in Christ more clearly and compellingly than the one that's before us this morning. And it's recognized in addition to that by many who write on this passage, write on this letter, that this is the climax of Paul's letter up to this point. So we've been building and building and building and really this is the bottom line to which we've been building as Paul is celebrating the gospel with the church at Rome. A distinct shift happens after chapter 8. It's a typical structuring of Paul's letter. He has a practical section following the doctrinal section. It's just here in Rome, the letter to Rome, that doctrinal section goes through the first eight chapters. So often we see Paul's letter split virtually in the middle as he moves from theology to practice. In Romans, it's late in the letter. It's those last five chapters, 12 through 16, where we see that. And in the intervening three chapters, 9 through 11, after chapter 8, we're answering an exceedingly important theological question. We'll get to that starting next Sunday. But here, we're dealing with the climax of the letter up to this point, the flourish that just underscores and affirms with celebration the security that the believer has who trusts in Christ. This passage is moved along by as many as 13 questions. Question and answer is very much the way Paul handled the closing part of Romans 8 here. As many as 13 questions appear in this text. But there are two of them. There are two of them that capture the heart of this passage in a unique way, and I would say are the anchor points for understanding and appreciating what it says. You can see those in your bulletin. That will be our outline for this morning. The first question, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's going to take us through verse 34. And then, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It will take us from verse 35 to 39. So we'll be anchoring into those questions and you can use them as those anchor points if you were taking notes this morning. This is a great passage, by the way, to take notes on because it is rich and deep. So first question, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's a good question. 
I often hear that question referred to, but not with the impact with which it lands as you're reading the book of Romans and hear it in its context as it comes at you off the page. Paul transitions toward his conclusion of this section of his letter that we know as chapter 8. He transitions toward the conclusion, raising a familiar question that we've heard before there in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? That's Paul pausing and saying, what do we draw from all of this? It's been rich teaching. What do we draw from what we've just heard? That's the question that is raised once we've heard just prior to this that those whom God predestined and called to salvation, he justified, he delivered the salvation that he promised, but he also glorified them. Kip did a nice job with this last week, pointing out that that's a past tense verb even though it's a future action. Those whom God predestined and called and justified, he also glorified a future blessing so certain to come to those who have their faith fixed in Christ that it can be referred to as a past action. It's as good as done. Our arrival in heaven, every one of us who have trusted Christ as Savior, is as good as done according to Paul's language here in this text. And it's such a grand and glorious future blessing that we're looking forward to that just prior to that, he said that we are groaning in our longing for its eventual arrival. How long, O Lord, do we wait until the full delivery of our salvation is accomplished? We groan in our longing for its eventual arrival, as does the whole cosmos along with us. Verse 22 just yearning to experience that day when the sufferings of this present time are made to look light and momentary by comparison. We're borrowing Paul's language from 2 Corinthians 4 there, but we are longing for that day. We are longing for the day when the sufferings of this life are appear light and momentary for the first time in comparison to the glory that is revealed to us on that day. But what Paul is telling us in this passage, part of grasping the glory of what he's communicating is that it doesn't all wait until that day to be revealed. We are still groaning and longing for that day, but while groaning, part of what enables that groaning is the work of salvation that's already being done in us. Even now, we can be so assured of this coming glory that we can be confident, Paul says, confident. We can know that all things are working together for good for those who are called to this salvation, for those who love God. His saving work has been accomplished within us when we've trusted Christ as Savior. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Adam to the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of the law to the kingdom of the Spirit. That's the dichotomy that Romans is setting up. 
And when we've entered into that, we've received his Holy Spirit who's taken up residence with us, an inbreaking of the coming new heavens and new earth already present within us, awakening that very groaning that we have. How long until this gift is fully and finally delivered? That's where Paul's been up until now. And so the question comes in verse 31, what shall we say to these things? That's where his question comes from. It's introductory. It's not one of those core skeletal questions on which this text is hanging. It's just the one that gets us into it. We need to remember what we've heard. And now Paul is saying, as he heads toward this conclusion, what do we say in response to this? Where do we go? The only answer can be the first question that he raises here that we've said is a skeletal question. It's one that actually lands more like an assertion. And you'll find that with most of the questions Paul is either asking or implying in this whole text. They're landing like assertions. They're almost rhetorical questions that are posed as questions so that the answer will come to the minds of the reader and bless them perhaps all the more deeply. When we get to a place where we're just proclaiming propositional truth, just telling people the truth, our eyes can glaze over after a while. But when we pose questions, something's engaged in the mind and the heart of the hearer such that we're forming the answers in our minds and being blessed right along with the, the truth that's being communicated. Paul employs that method as he goes into this final section. And the first skeletal question he asks is, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's what we're saying in response to what we've heard. When you hear it in context, you know it's a rhetorical question. Because the answer is already present in the minds of his readers that they've been listening and following up to now. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the best answer, write this down somewhere. This is brilliantly insightful. All right. The best answer to that question, who cares? Who gives a rip? Who's against us if God is for us? Are you with me? All right, good. Just making sure. Who cares? That's actually the, Paul want, the point Paul wants to make here. If God is for us, and you'll hear me say this several times this morning, if God is for us, it couldn't matter less who's against us. That's what Paul wants his readers to hear. That's got to sink in because the church in our day and age has a virtual complex with regard to all of the different ideologies and beliefs and opponents that are arrayed against us as though it matters one whit. If God is for us, who can be against us? It couldn't matter less. The level of confidence Romans 8 is written to instill in all of us who have trusted Christ as Savior is captured by that thought. If God is for us, who can be against us? It really doesn't matter. 
there is no condemnation for us. Going all the way back to verse 1. And nothing will be able to separate us from his love in Christ. Going to the final verse of this chapter. There's the bracket. There's our takeaway. We are not under condemnation any longer. And nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. So if God is for us in that way, who can be against us? That doesn't mean we check out of this world and retreat from all responsible engagement in it with it. That's actually what frees us to go into this world with the actual message that has a hope of changing the things that we see around us. But so often we get caught up in so many lesser things, thinking that power is actually wielded by the governmental seats in this world. Thinking that the answer is either political or economic. If we just had more resources, we could make better advancements. God, help us. That is untrue. We have the message that can help this world. But it gets clouded in our minds. And we actually think that targeting our efforts in other ways is what's going to be most effective. If God is for us, who can be against us? Can you say it with me? It couldn't matter less. It couldn't matter less. Moving on in the text. You're going to note that I'm tempted to stop on every single one of these verses and just make that the morning's message, right? So if we actually finish with what I prepared for this morning, God be praised. It will be, uh, it, it will be his work that's accomplished, all right? I've often been asked, what is your favorite verse in the Bible? And I usually answer, there is just no way for me to choose. That's one of the questions I dread hearing, especially from children, because they really want to hear an answer, and I just don't have one. But I'll tell you what, I can tell you this, that the verse that comes next here is as close as it gets. Romans 8, 32, where we go on the heels of being asked this question, if God is for us, who can be against us? In verse 32, you can tell that this is a favorite of mine because I quote it often. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How is it that we can get caught up not just in our opponents, but caught up in some idea as believers that somehow we lack the resources we need in order to live faithfully today? As though somehow God, having saved us through the finished work of Christ on our behalf, is going to see us in need of something in order to live in a manner worthy of our calling and withhold it from us because we haven't been good today. Does that sound like the way God works to you? Answer me on this one. This one's not rhetorical. Does that sound like the way God works? No. No. But how many of us live day in and day out as though that's true? As though having trusted Christ as Savior, we now have to earn the privilege of receiving the grace of God to live up to it. Once again, 
God, help us. This is such a familiar passage with such familiar teaching. And yet it hits us on a level that think, wait a minute, my, my experience isn't matching the reality of what I'm reading in this passage. So if God is for us, it couldn't matter less who's against us. Because he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, surely will, along with him, graciously give us all things. Not all things we want or desire, all things we need to live in a manner worthy of him. To live up to the faith that we have professed, received. If God facilitated our salvation through the death of his son, what would he possibly withhold from us once we receive that salvation by faith in his son? Nothing is more precious to the father than his son. And we might also add, and the spirit who is one with them. And, by the way, whom he's also given to us. We saw that back in chapter 5. We'll see that, we see that here in verses 9 to 11. We see it all over the Scriptures, all over the New Testament. That's the distinguishing mark of the New Covenant, the giving of the Spirit, making alive, writing the law of God on our hearts, regenerating us so that future resurrection is now our hope. Nothing is more precious to the Father than the Son. So if He's given us the Son, what else will He withhold from us? Once again, this question is a virtual assertion. God will not withhold anything from those whom he's already given his son and to whom he's already given his spirit. Then Paul just keeps on going from there. He just keeps on going, heaping up assertion upon irreversible assertion about this salvation that is ours in Christ. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. I've wrestled with that for a while, even though it's, it's pretty simple and pretty clear the way it's worded. But you know, if we actually want to get a clear idea, we could take the second part, the second sentence there, and put it in front of the first as a conditional. And then we get it a little bit more clearly. If God is the one who justifies, who can bring any charge against his elect? Does that make sense? If God is the one who justifies, who can bring any charge against his elect? If the all-powerful, all-knowing God who is perfectly holy has declared us not guilty by faith in Christ, who in this world is going to make any charge against us stick? Who's going to get a guilty verdict that nullifies the not guilty that we've received from the sovereign of the universe? By faith in his son. Before what court would any accuser get a guilty charge? This is our salvation. Verse 34, who can condemn us if it's Christ Jesus who died for us? Who laid down his life in our place such that He paid fully for our sin and gave us his righteousness as a gift. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. The second person of the Trinity paying the 
debt of our sin and granting us his perfect righteousness, who's going to condemn us if he's the one who's not guilty standing we receive by faith? But Paul just keeps going. More than that, who was raised. So who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was raised. He was raised in victory over sin and death. But not just over sin and death in general. Not in this text. But raised in victory over our sin and death. All of us who trusted him as Savior. That's a particular blessing, not just a general one at this stage. So who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. And more than even that, who is at the right hand of God, having finished his work of redemption and sat down there, according to the writer of Hebrews, and who indeed is interceding for us right along with the Holy Spirit, as we heard back in verse 26. So the Spirit is hearing us in our groaning. Spirit present with us. Groaning on our behalf to the Father in perfect accord with His will on our behalf. Meanwhile, Christ seated at the right hand, still localized because He's still in His resurrection body. At the right hand of the Father, whatever that means or wherever that is, Christ is localized at this point and present with us by His Spirit. It's as though he's whispering in the ear of the Father even as the Spirit is listening to our whispers and interceding. This is an intercession on our behalf by two of the three members of the Trinity to the third, one of them present with us in a unique way, the other present with the Father in a unique way. Do you think that game of telephone is going to get mixed up? In its messages? I don't think so. Paul is just driving home this assertion that's disguised as a core question here, which captures this section. If God is for us, it doesn't make one bit of difference who's against us. By the time he's gotten through these first four verses, we see that with clarity. It couldn't matter less because he has cared for every aspect of our justification, covering all things past, present, and future. And the reliability of our justification doesn't even rest on the consistency of our living up to it. It's actually built on the consistency of his living up to it. And then granting us his righteousness by faith. So there was nothing we could do to earn our salvation. And what Paul is telling us here is there's nothing we can do to destroy it either. Our salvation in Christ is a finished work. It's a done deal that will not be reversed. That's the teaching of the word of God. And since that is so... Paul asks this next core question that carries us through the remainder of this passage. And actually, 
is the assertion that uniquely expresses all Paul has written thus far. As one commentator wrote, it draws together not only the entire series of questions, but the whole of the letter. Here we have the summa summarum. Some of our kids doing classical education, tell me what that means in Latin. <laughs> Here we have the summa summarum, one commentator wrote. That means the sum of sums. The all in all, it might be translated. And what is that question? That is actually an assertion masked as a question? It's our second question today. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? If God is for us, it doesn't matter who's against us. And nobody can interrupt that relationship. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, Paul's answer to this question is direct and clear in verses 38 and 39, the last two verses of this passage. But first, he does something different. And he even runs the risk, and many would say this as they write on it, runs the risk of confusing his point a little bit by this reference to Psalm 44. But we're going to just take that in stride and see where it takes us this morning, all right? He answers the question directly then in verses 38 and 39, but first he runs through a reminder of some of the things he's already taught earlier in this chapter. He gives us here, for instance, a sevenfold list of sufferings that might be thought to separate us from the love of Christ. We're familiar with sevenfold lists, aren't we, from the book of Revelation. Sevenfold lists communicate fullness. They communicate completeness. Paul's giving us everything that could possibly be thought of that might be an indicator of the fact that we've been separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So this sevenfold list here expresses the fullness of suffering in this life which we might receive or as Christians, as evidence that we have been cut off from the love of Christ, you can see how it's written. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Quick aside here. Quotes from a couple of commentators that are helpful in appreciating this list. One wrote, the kind of troubles that Paul lists here appear both ironically in the book of Job and straightforwardly in early Jewish writings as acts of divine vengeance reserved for the rebellious and disobedient. These are words that are supposed to conjure up in our mind divine judgment against an undeserving recipient of God's mercy and grace. Another wrote, they also appear occasionally elsewhere, suggesting the punitive work of the Creator. This is divine punishment. Things that might think, make us think we've been cut off from the love of Christ when we experience them. Another wrote, these afflictions represent many of the problems Paul encountered in his apostolic ministry. He had personal, firsthand experience with each and every one of these. You can read about that in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12 and other places. These afflictions represent many of the problems Paul encountered in his apostolic ministry, and they have often been identified as the messianic woes or birth pangs of the end times. This is a significant listing of curses, we might say. Things we can experience in this life that could cause us to believe we've been separated from the love of Christ. 
But then comes this quotation from Psalm 44, which admittedly is challenging to understand. But using it, I believe Paul helps us see his point here. The context is Psalm 44. If we were to take some time to go back there and read it, I just don't think we have time to do that this morning. The context of Psalm 44 is the suffering of God's people, but their suffering in circumstances where their guilt was not the cause of the suffering. Uniquely suited for quotation in Romans 8. And that's made clear with the opening words of the quote itself. Sometimes our suffering is for God's sake. Do you see that that's how the quote begins? It's for God's sake that we are free. A a, a faithful commentator writing on Psalm 44, not writing on Romans, but writing on Psalm 44 wrote this. Psalm 44 does not develop it but it implies the revolutionary thought that suffering may be a battle scar rather than a punishment. Just a mark of having been faithful to God that's going to bring opposition. He goes on to write, I won't try to... Psalm 44 does not develop it, but it implies the revolutionary thought that suffering may be a battle scar rather than a punishment. The price of loyalty in a world which is at war with God so in other words, if we follow God in a, war, a world that's at war with him, we're going to get scars. We're gonna, we're gonna, blood is going to be shed. But that's what Scripture teaches anyway. This commentator goes on to say, if this is so, suffering as well as victory may be a sign of fellowship with him, not of alienation. So Paul, this is again a commentary on Psalm 44. So Paul quotes verse 22 here in Psalm 44, not with the despair of the more than defeated, but with the conviction that in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. These situations aren't exhibiting separation from God, either in Romans 8 or in Psalm 44. That's why he's quoting Psalm 44. We can experience these things, and it's not an indicator that we've been cut off from the love of God. In other words, affirming that such things are listed here not only don't reflect that we've been cut off from the love of Christ, but as we endure them, clinging to him by faith, they actually prove that we haven't been cut off from him because we're enduring them, clinging to him by faith. That's what Paul's been writing about through this letter. The very next verse of Psalm 44, after the one quoted here, is is verse 23. that says, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Does that remind you of any other passage of Scripture? How about Jesus' disciples in the boat? On the day that the storm arose on the Sea of Galilee. Mark chapter 4 verses 37 and following. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat. Verse 38. But he was in the stern, Jesus was, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Sometimes it seems to us like God is asleep when we feel like he should be awake. 
and present and active in the present moment. But he's working in us through such times, precisely through such times. That's the bigger picture. But here, right here in Romans 8, it's more particular. Here we see that such suffering sets the context for us to be strengthened in our faith if we view it rightly. Strengthened in our faith as just one more manifestation that all things truly are working together for our good. If we see these things and don't say, ah, God is against me, but say, I'm clinging to Christ in the midst of this. The only answer to these trials is to go through them and to the other side. Trusting in Him. Proving, therefore, that that which is hard for us is actually accomplishing our good. It's making us like Christ in this fallen world where we face such opposition. So, shall any of this sevenfold list separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 37, no, no. In all these things, we are not just conquerors, but more than conquerors, Through him who loved us. We endure by the love of Christ that is ours by faith in him. In the midst of these circumstances that we inevitably will face in a world that is opposed to God. It's opposed to us right along with him. And the love of Christ stays with us enabling us, strengthening us through those. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Verse 38. For I am sure, Paul wrote... That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. A tenfold list this time. Will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I believe the best way to take this description is not to try to find distinct and contrasting complementary meanings to each of these words that Paul listed here in this tenfold listing. Or to press the obvious pairings with which they appear as some sort of comprehensive listing of all the known categories in the existent universe. Like if we can put them all together and figure out that there's some portion of the universe that's uncovered by this description that that Therefore, those are the things then that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. That sounds crazy, but there are a lot of people that do that with this text. Looking for what wasn't mentioned to see what it is then. Discerning readers want to know what it is that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. It's not how it works. The anything else in all creation is supposed to clue us into that, right? But let's, let's ramp up to that. Clearly, there are some discernible categories here. Nothing, for instance, in death or in life. That seems pretty thorough all on its own without anything more listed. Nothing in death or in life can separate us from the love of Christ. No power in this seen or unseen world can do it. We see those categories there. Nothing over the passage of time can do it. The past right up to the present or anything extending indefinitely into the future. None of this can separate us from his love in Christ. Nothing high or low, strange categories, but they draw our minds to Paul's description of the vast dimensions of God's love in Ephesians 3. 
neither height nor depth, all of that description of the love of Christ. But basically, that said, I believe this whole listing is intended to be taken as a unit, taken as a poetic flourish of images crafted to serve as a powerful telescope magnifying the grand and limitless final focal point in Paul's list, namely everything in all creation. He's just, it's just an on-ramp to saying that. There's nothing in all creation that is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He's saying everything in all creation is being summarily dismissed as having any power to impede the bond of love between Christ and his people. Between Christ and all those who are reconciled to God by faith in him. So putting these two lists together, the sevenfold followed by the tenfold, it does though seem to give us a sense that we're being invited to include anything, anything else that can tempt us to believe that it might separate us. That this is the thing that might separate us. I think we're being, we're being drawn into this by this poetic flourish to say, add whatever you want to the list because the list itself has included everything in all creation. So plug it in if you think it might separate you from the love of God in Christ. Now keep in mind that All the instruction Paul has offered so far in this letter is calling us to live into the grace that is ours in Christ and live into the new freedoms that are afforded to us by God's grace in him. That's been the destruction, the instruction so far. So as Paul is saying that, as he has written it all to this point and now is coming to this climax, as we are doing that, living into the grace that is ours in Christ, the love of God in Christ, the, 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 the strength and faith that is ours in him, as we are living into that, then, for instance, no amount of stumbling over stubborn, hard-to-break sins is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. They're all covered. Past, present, future. By the sacrifice of Christ. When we're in Christ, seeking to live by him, our salvation isn't dependent on the consistency of our actions, but on the finished work of his. So stubborn and hard to break sins are not able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We could add that one to the list. No struggle with the temptations of the flesh is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No relational struggle or conflicted relationship, no troubled marriage, no wayward child is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No financial reversal. No vocational injustice. No lost job. No failed exam, students. Is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord as we continue to look to him in the midst of all of that. Oh, and at that point, it just unleashes 
the local body of Christ to press into, lean into this passage at every point of need. No health situation. No childhood cancer or chemotherapy. No latter life cancer or chemotherapy. No life-threatening disease or diagnosis at any age. No amniotic fluid embolism. No micro-arterial venal malformation. No motorcycle accident or flood-swollen river. No such things are able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. No painful or frightening indication of our aging. No reminder of our profound inadequacy in every circumstance we face. No inability to handle or redirect or at times even endure the unpredictable ups and downs of this untamed world. No inadequacy or inability in any of those areas is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord because he has accomplished and finished our salvation. None of these, nor anything else in all creation, is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? This, my friends, this is our salvation in Christ. And it is secure. It is as secure as his finished work on the cross for all who believe. No one in this universe outside of God himself is able to separate us from his love in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he has promised that he won't do it once we've genuinely trusted in him. He's the one who awakened us to the love of Christ in the first place. And he will never renege on that offer, on that gift. Bottom line, if God is for us, it truly couldn't matter less who is against us regardless of who that might be. So I'm going to answer or, ask, or finish this morning with a question. Seems appropriate from this text. Have you ever heard any better news than this? Have you ever heard any better news than this? Pray with me, if you will. And even as we pray, those who are serving next, please come to the platform. Heavenly Father, we admit that we understand this passage. We can read it and hear what it says, and the words make sense to us. But, Lord, we also confess that our day-in and day-out experience often differs widely from what we read and the real danger of that is the fact that so often we don't notice it. Father, I pray that today you would help us to notice. And to notice not so that we finish this time together feeling guilty for not having held on to these truths more faithfully, but that we feel liberated, reminded 
the fact that you are faithful even when we are faithless. And that the salvation that we have received from you by faith in Christ is a salvation that will be fully and finally delivered. Its ultimate expression is as good as done. Lord God, help us to hold on to that as we struggle with the ongoing sin and fallenness of this world. Help us, Lord God, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling and to live into this salvation that is ours in Christ and will never be taken away. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.